0: Good morning Brussels, good afternoon Mosul, and good evening Chiang Mai from Washington DC. I'm Ethan Plackin, and this is Intrigue Out Loud, your go-to audio guide to the globe. On today's show I'm joined by Intrigue Senior Editor Valentina Calvi to discuss negotiations between Serbia and Kosovo and the collapse of another American bank. It's all coming up. Good morning, Val. How are you?
1: Hi, hi Ethan. I'm doing well, thank you. You know, London's getting ready for this weekend's coronation, and the weather's been unusually lovely. So I really can't complain. How are you doing? You
0: have to wonder if that's some sort of uh, divine intervention on behalf of the new king. (laughs) So our first story today is taking us to your home continent, uh, not to London, but to somewhere else on the continent, and the ongoing negotiations to settle one of Europe's longest-running and most contentious disagreements. So... What's the story?
1: Yes, so we're talking about Serbia and Kosovo, which have been engaged in negotiations to normalize ties. There are still some serious sticking points between the two countries, but all of a sudden it seems like progress is accelerating, which is very exciting. On Tuesday, the leaders of the two countries, Serbia's Aleksandar Vučić and Kosovo's Albin Kurti, met in Brussels for another round of talks hosted by the EU, um, well by the EU's foreign policy chief uh, Josep Borrell, to be more specific. Pacific. Um, and that meeting was designed to push forward an EU-sponsored peace plan, which you know both sides tacitly approved of in late February. Um, you know, like I said, there's still a ways to go and sort everything out. But if the countries do manage to normalize ties, it would be it would be a very very big deal. Certainly, one of the best and biggest diplomacy stories of the year.
0: Counting some chickens there, Val. Be careful. Uh, <laughs> you're right. You're right. Uh, so. Let's backtrack here. Uh, How did this disagreement start?
1: Well, um, it's absolutely 100% impossible to explain um, the history of the Balkans in the time we have allotted here, Ethan. (laughs) But, you know, I'll I'll try my best. Um, So basically, Kosovo was incorporated as a semi-autonomous region in the Socialist Republic of Serbia, while both countries were part of Yugoslavia. But there were always big tensions between Serbia's ethnic Serbs, who are mostly Christian, and Kosovo's ethnic Albanians, who are mostly Muslim. So after Yugoslavia broke up in the early 1990s, the uh, Albanian population attempted to declare independence from Serbia. Um, But, uh, you know, they were brutally suppressed by Serbian forces. And this ultimately turned into a bloody war, complete with war crimes uh, and reports of ethnic cleansing as well. Um, Then NATO intervened. NATO forces responded with a bombing campaign in 1999, which forced um, Serbian forces out of Kosovo. And then in 2008, Kosovo uh, declared independence again from Serbia, although Serbia still doesn't recognize Kosovo as a sovereign um, country. And as a matter of fact, nearly half of the world agrees with Serbia. You know, we've got nations like Russia, China and India who don't recognize Kosovo. And, you know, funnily enough, uh, only around 80% of EU members uh, also uh, recognize Kosovo. So, you know, there isn't a complete understanding within Europe as well.
0: I mean, this sounds like a, a deeply historical, fairly intractable disagreement. What's what's bringing them to the negotiating table?
1: Hmm. Um, you know, that's a good question. And I would say in this case, as in many other cases, we'll definitely talk about it's basically good old fashioned mutual self-interest. Both Serbia and Kosovo aspire to become EU members. Part of any accession talks, they have to maintain healthy relations with other members and, you know, sort out any potential conflicts. And this is really, uh, you know, the final hurdle before both of them. Serbia has been going to fairly significant lengths to prove that it deserves to be a part of the EU, um, you know, including denouncing the invasion of Ukraine by its historic ally Russia. In January of this year, if I remember correctly, the Serbian president said, and I quote, for us, Crimea is Ukraine, Donbass is Ukraine, and it'll remain so. So pretty clear cut. Well
0: wow. uh, and so so you've mentioned uh, these sticking points a few times what are they i mean is serbia going to be expected to to recognize kosovo's independence
1: <laughs> no um interestingly enough that's not really on the table which is why it's a normalization agreement and not a recognition agreement so mm. You know, basically, the EU wants the countries to end hostilities without forcing them to do anything too uncomfortable, which might actually just, you know, stoke tensions. So, you know, uh, this could include Serbia recognizing Kosovo's independence. That's a non-starter. So instead, the EU has proposed that Serbia need only recognize Kosovo's passports and driver's license as legitimate form of documentation, which is, you know, a pretty creative workaround. If you ask me, you know, just throw some bureaucracy on the problem and see if it just sorts itself out. Um, But in response, Serbia has uh, demanded that uh, the majority Serb regions in the north of Kosovo be allowed to form association agreements with Serbia. Which uh, would undermine Kosovo's sovereignty over the region, and Kosovo's Supreme Court has already tried to put an end to it and has declared this unconstitutional. So that's a big sticking point. And then another issue is that Kosovo has asked for Serbia to account for around 1,600 people that went missing during the Kosovo War.
0: Right, and those don't sound like easy issues to resolve.
1: No, not at all. But they do seem closer than ever, so... You know, it took around five years for the two sides to get to the negotiating table at all after Kosovo declared independence. And then, you know, another seven to normalize economic ties. And now they're moving towards diplomatic normalization in only around three years. So, you know, who knows what might happen after normalization. It's a good reminder that, when, you know, with some patience and good faith and a touch of mutual self-interest, it is possible to repair old wounds. But I would say, you know, let's focus on this positive, let's, you know, not put the cart ahead of the horses, but, you know, it seems like a good, good development.
0: Today's show is sponsored by Roka. We really like newsletters, and we've got another recommendation that you've got to check out. The Current by Roka News. Here's what we like about it. It was founded by people who don't like the negative, partisan, and alarmist style of news. It favors facts over opinions. And it tells you what you need to know for the day so you can hold your own at happy hour. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. All right, welcome back. Next up, we're talking about more turmoil in the U.S. banking system. Val... What's the story here?
1: Yeah, so this is a story of First Republic Bank, which was seized by financial regulators just this Monday morning um, and sold to J.P. Morgan Chase. So First Republic is the second largest bank to collapse in U.S. history. But interestingly, or rather worryingly, if you're a U.S. regulator... Three of the four largest collapses have taken place just in the last two months.
0: Throw me into that, that bucket of, of worried people with the US regulators.
1: I how you know, yeah. I completely <laughs> agree. <laughs> As a European, you know, I'm just twiddling my thumbs here. No, I'm kidding. Anything (laughs) that happens to you guys will inevitably happen to us. So everyone is, you know, (laughs) keeping an eye on this story. Anyways, to get back to her story, um, you know, two, so we got other two uh, banks that failed um, this past year. Um, But unlike those two other banks, Silicon Valley and Signature Bank, which sort of collapses like very fast, First Republic's death was a lot slower and more painful to watch. Um, And unlike those other two banks, which I just mentioned, regulators went to some fairly significant lengths to save First Republic. How so? Well, after Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank both failed, regulators convinced a group of 11 major banks, uh, banks like Citigroup and Bank of America, to send First Republic a 30 billion lifeline, you know, cents, um, to help stop the contagion spreading throughout the banking system, because that's the main fear, right? Um, And then that money was used to guarantee customers deposits in order to convince First Republic's clients that their money was safe every everything's fine. And so to essentially prevent a bank run.
0: All that money and yet it still failed. So so why did First Republic fail?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's sort of incredible, isn't it? But ultimately, it all comes down to the kind of clients that First Republic served and what First Republic expected that they wanted and the fact that First Republic made investments based on a very specific macroeconomic environment that, you know, no longer exists.
0: Okay, great. And and now in English, Val, please.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yeah, fair point, fair point. So First Republic's clients were super wealthy. uh, And the assumption was that the bank um, wouldn't mind paying them Uh, low interest rates on their deposit. And what they really wanted was great customer service. So um, I read about the story about a customer who wanted to travel to Japan and called up his banker and First Republic sent thousands of dollars in Japanese yen to his doorstep without any sort of delivery fee or anything else. So, you know, better than Deliveroo. Um, And, you know, so the customer service does seem pretty great. Um, And then the other thing First Republic offered was low rate mortgages, so that their credit-worthy customers could easily purchase, you know, that second, third, and fourth homes. Um, And the system worked for a while, but then the Federal Reserve started rising interest rates. And that meant a couple of things. So. First, customers could get much higher returns on their deposits at other banks who have higher interest rates, uh, and so May just decided to leave. But First Republic had lots of money caught up in these slow maturity assets like mortgages.
0: Right. So not enough cash on hand to cover all those withdrawals.
1: Yes, exactly. So once word started spreading around like that, you're almost guaranteed to get a a bank run. And that's exactly what happened. So last quarter, First Republic's customers yanked out 102 of the bank's 170 $6 6 billion in deposits. So even with all the capital injections during the the month of March the bank just couldn't be saved. Right.
0: But but regulators wouldn't let a a bank that size just disappear.
1: That's exactly right. Um which is why they arranged the sale to JP Morgan, way better than doing nothing of course and probably more politically palatable than using taxpayer money to bail First Republic out and their customers with, you know, four homes. Um but that's not to say everyone will be happy about this agreement. Uh, I mean, the biggest bank in America, JP Morgan, just got even bigger. So I expect lots of people will see this as a way for the rich to get richer.
0: Well, well optics and, and politics aside, I think, I think podcast hosts and financial regulators alike are wondering about, does it seem like the tide of financial turmoil is starting to turn?
1: Well, you know, unfortunately, it's kind of hard to tell. Um, I know this isn't the answer you were hoping for. I'm very sorry. Um, but JP Morgan's CEO, Jamie Dimon, indicated that First Republic's demise seems to be the end of American America's acute banking system crisis. Um, and I think that seems largely true. There will be still failures because, you know, of course, um, the US has so many banks. But Genuinely, things seem to be stabilizing.
0: Let's hope so. Thanks, Val.
1: Thank you. It's been lovely.
0: Here are a couple other stories we're tracking today. German parliament approved the deployment of 60 troops to the country of Niger, where they'll join an EU logistics mission. The deployment counters a wider regional trend that's led European countries to reduce their military presence on the continent. Uzbek voters approved a referendum on Sunday that will allow the country's president to extend his rule for two more seven-year terms. The referendum also helps preserve some human rights, but observers said the country remains authoritarian. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, Uzbekistan's four other Central Asian neighbors have some of the coolest flags on Earth. But in our opinion, one clearly stands out above the rest. Check out the International Intrigue newsletter to see which one it is. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Friday.